All right, whenever you're ready, Paul. All right, welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Hi, I'm Paul. I am Elijah. And I'm Adam. Okay, so today we read book four of the Metamorphoses. I'm going to share a summary of this action-packed <laughs> book. Uh, book four begins with a series of stories told by the daughters of Minias, who worship Pallas and refuse to worship Bacchus. They tell a series of stories and weave while the other women in Thebes are partaking in the worship of Bacchus. Alcetho starts with the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. The parents of the two young lovers won't allow them to marry. They court in secret through a hole in the wall. They agree to rendezvous at night and Thisbe narrowly avoids a lion but loses her veil in the process. Pyramus sees the veil and assumes the lion has eaten Thisbe and kills himself. Thisbe returns, finds Pyramus and kills herself. Their bloody story explains why the mulberry tree has its red color. Next, Lakunu tells the story of Mars and Venus and the sun god in Lukotho, different name, almost similar. The sun reveals the affair between Mars and Venus to the latter's husband, Vulcan, who pulls a prank on them and shames them. Venus avenges herself on the sun by making the sun fall in love with Lukotho, a beautiful young woman. The sun disguises himself as her mother, Euronomi, and seduces her. Cleti, another of the sun's lovers, jealously tells the father of Lukotho, who buries her underground to keep her from the sun. She becomes a shrub that reaches ever towards the sun. Cleti is heartbroken and becomes another flower that faces the sun in her death. Alcetho next tells the story of Salmasis, the fountain that makes men weak and feeble. Hermaphroditus is the beautiful son of Mercury and Venus. A water nymph falls in love with him and pursues him relentlessly. She pursues him into a pool where he is bathing and grabs hold of him and prays to the gods that they might never be separated. Hermaphroditus comes out of the pool half man and half woman and wishes a similar fate on anyone who enters the pool. After the stories of the daughters of Minias, they are punished for their scorn of Bacchus. Their weaving turns into grapevines and they turn into bats. Next, book four turns to Bacchus's aunt, Eno, and her husband, Athamas. Eno proclaims the power of Bacchus, which infuriates Juno, who decides to drive Eno and her husband mad, a strategy that Bacchus pioneers in the previous book. Juno descends into hell and asks Tisiphone, a fury, to carry out her will. Tisiphone brings snakes that afflict the minds of Eno and Athamas. They go mad and throw themselves into the sea. Out of pity, Venus asks Neptune to turn Eno and Athamas into gods, which he does. The Theban women who try to mourn them, however, are turned into stone. Cadmus at this point has lost and suffered much, and he wonders if his bad fate is connected to the snake he killed at the founding of Thebes. This is confirmed when he and his wife are turned into snakes, though the text assures us that they are of the gentle kind. Finally, we hear the story of Perseus, who King Acrisius of Argos denies is divine. The story of Perseus picks up after he has slaughtered the Gorgon Medusa. He comes to the realm of Atlas, who refuses him entry to his realm because of an ominous oracle. Perseus uses the head of Medusa to turn Atlas to stone. Then Perseus comes across Andromeda, a young woman who the god Ammon is making to, quote, pay the penalty for her mother's talking. Perseus agrees to free her if he can marry her afterwards. He fights a sea monster and kills it and builds three altars to Mercury, Pallas, and Jove. At the wedding feast, he tells of how he defeated Medusa and how she came to have snakes for hair. Now with the opening question, Adam. Thank you, Elijah. 
My opening question tonight is about the stories the women tell while they're weaving and refusing to participate in the Bacchanalian rituals happening outside their house. All the stories they tell, really all the stories involving Cadmus and his family involve lovers being intertwined in some physical way, but not actually having sex. Meanwhile, in the background, we have Bacchus and the Bacchanalian festivals that these stories are helping them avoid. Ovid seems to me to be drawing some kind of distinction here between the desire to sleep with someone and the desire to actually possess or merge with them. But to flesh that out a little bit, I think sex is often taken to have a possessive element. There's a, there's a kind of literal sense that you merge and create a child when you have sex. I mean, and there's also babies reoccur throughout the throughout book four as well. But here, Ovid seems to be drawing a different kind of distinction that there are, there are two different kinds of desires. There's a sexual desire, and then there's also the desire to actually merge bodies and minds with the object of your affection with the beloved. Let's discuss this interesting feature of book four. <laughs> Do you think, Adam, that the desire to merge is, is tied to some sort of transformation in the way that you know, mere intercourse is not. Yeah, it's like you don't just want to possess them, you want to somehow to become them. I'm trying to think of the, so let's specifically, we can talk about maybe the story of Hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite. So he, the nymph that lusts after him, she pursues him into the pool and wraps her body around his and their bodies, their bodies merge, right? And the story, what, was the, what was the name name of the two lovers in the first story, Elijah? Pyramus and Thisbe. So Pyramus and Thisbe, they go to this nighttime rendezvous, but instead of sleeping together, they they merge their bloody, you know, I mean their blood mixes in the ground, right? And they and they go to the underworld together. Cadmus and Harmony, I can't remember the name of the story, but Cadmus and Harmony, his wife, they become intertwined snakes at the end. Somehow there's a transformational desire that's beyond just lust, right? I don't wanna, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to say about it, but I think. Is it like the, the distinction between lust and companionship or something like that? Like the daughters are telling these stories about like maybe like a more platonic sense of love where it's just being with someone that you respect and you're intellectually, well, I don't know. If, I, I don't know how far to take the platonic thing, but the point being that it's not centered around sex. And I obviously juxtapose that to the Bachian lustful acts and all that, the orgies that are going on outside. I know we've talked about at least a few times that whether this is like a moral guidebook or something along those lines, I wonder if Ovid is promoting one over the other or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. So it's definitely a poem concerned with possession and with power, right? And arrows. And I wonder if, so the, when book three, the women at the end, when they, when they rip Penthes apart, right? They're sort of possessed by Bacchus in that. And Bacchus is a kind of possessive power as well, you know? And I think Elijah, last time you made the interesting point that the Bacchian transformation seems to be like internal subjective one. But here we have, like so somehow the idea is that the latter force, the possessive force is like more powerful 
then like Eros is a transformative force, right? Lust is a transformative force, but the, is the, the higher order force is this desire to possess or merge or change or something. That's the opposite of the way we might think about it, that, er, that, that Eros is the driver and the companionship or the, the merging is, is, is secondary, right? Is derivative of Eros. But here it seems like the other one, the transformative, the possessive desire is driving and Eros is kind of derivative of that. Welcome, Mr. Eric. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you on the, the podcast today, as always. Um, Great to be here. <laughs> very smooth, very smooth, very smooth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in, in response to that, Adam, I mean, can we read the, the, the moment with um, Salmasis and Hermaphroditus? I think I think I kind of want to push back against that account, and I, I need to read a little bit before I can say why I think that's the case. So I'm going to read like two stanzas, starting around line 330, page 92 in the Humphreys translation. Salmasis has sort of pursued him using, she's tried to seduce him using words. He's like, leave me alone. She pretends to leave him alone and is watching uh, as he goes into this pool. And that's where I'm going to pick up. Desire of the naked body held her spellbound. Her eyes were bright and burning as a sun glass shines. She can hardly bear the waiting, hardly postpone her pleasure, mad to hold him, amorous, eager. He slaps his body, plunges into the pool, goes flailing through the water, a white and gleaming figure, a lily flower or ivory translucent glass around him. I win, I have him, she cried, stripping herself naked. Dove swam to him and held him fast, resisting, sought his reluctant kisses, touched his body, stroked his unwilling breast, embraced and held him whatever way she could. He fought and struggled, but she wrapped herself around him as a serpent caught by an eagle borne aloft in tangles coils around head and talons, or as ivy winds around great oaks, or an octopus extends its prey within its tentacles. He refused her the joy she wanted most, but still she held him body to body. He would not escape her, fight as he may. Oh, grant me this, she cried in prayer to the gods. May no day ever come to separate us. And they heard her prayer, and the two bodies seemed to merge together, one face, one form, as when a twig is grafted on parent stock both knit, mature together. So these two joined in close embrace, no longer two beings and no longer man and woman, but neither and yet both. Hermaphroditus saw that the water had made him half a man with limbs all softness. He held out his arms, lifting a voice whose tone was almost treble, pleading, oh, father and mother, grant me this. May everyone hereafter who comes diving into this pool emerge half man made weaker by the touch of this evil water. It was granted that prayer. And ever since that day, the waters hold that contamination. Uh, so the first line I'd wanna draw our attention to, and I don't know how to talk about this while staying PG, and I guess that's okay. He refused her the joy she wanted most, right? So what she wants is the penetration, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, well, that's one way to read it, right? Well, but that's that's what I'm wondering about. Her plea about. to the gods is not give me it's not it's not penetrate me or believe the gods uh, let no day come to ever separate us right uh, that's what i'm wondering about but then the other thing i notice is after they've been separated her consciousness seems to have totally disappeared because hermaphroditus yeah. exits the pool and of course if salmasis was part of this new being she would say blessings on you pool that gave me the thing that i wanted but that's precisely not what Hermaphroditus says. He says the opposite. So in this merger, 
she seems to have effectively disappeared as an agent. Um, yeah, or and, at very least, yeah, their consciences remain distinct, right? Uh-huh. And, and her, and her and body her, disappears. Her, her body, body disappears, and her consciousness is really nowhere to be seen, it seems to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess this doesn't strike me, and Paul was talking about this a minute ago, it doesn't strike me as some sort of ideal kind of love. I, I, I don't exactly know how to think about it, but it's, it's complicated at the very least. And I, and I guess the question is whether she is making that prayer of separation as like a consolation for not having the erotic thing she wants or yeah. whether that's a, that is the thing she really wants. If that makes sense, that distinction. Well, and the, the thing that's really striking about it too is like this, this now becomes a contamination and now those waters are going to do that to anyone that enters it from then on so it's certainly not like an ideal it almost feels like a a critique of um aristophanes idea of love in in the symposium you know because like that's the ideal love where the two the two are merged into one and they i mean i guess it's a little different because in aristophanes vision there's like there's double of everything uh in this one they're not but either way i can't help but think of that but Aristophanes puts that as like what all love is going for, whereas now here it's a contamination. So I think that's really interesting. Well, and I think that's right. And Hermaphroditus, he conceives of it as a privation, right? Hermaphroditus saw that the water had made him half a man, which is different than saying saw that the water had changed his nature or saw that the water made him a superhuman that contained both genders. He doesn't say that, right? He says half a man. So at the very least, he experiences this as some sort of loss. Though it's though it's not ne- it's not necessarily the case that this story of all the stories in book four or of all the stories in this poem has to be the archetype. It might be a deviation from a more archetypal story. That's something certainly we should think about. I guess maybe a better way to think about my question is it's easy, it seems to me it's easy to read this poem and just be throw your hands up and say that the point ultimately is that all transformations are kind of the same. Like the, the point is that everything is transforming into everything else all the time. Right. And this is just, and, and Ovid is just coming up with different ways to draw out the most basic feature of the world that he sees, which is that, you know, everything, like everything is decaying, everything is growing. There are these cycles, maybe not even cycles. Maybe there's just like this endless process of, creation and destruction one feeding the other you know and all these boundaries that we seem fixed are very blurry you know and you can call that progress that sort of propulsive force whatever you want seems like it's some kind of erotic or in the larger sense of eros is like a you know sort of propulsive metaphysical force but i was i'm trying to draw out more distinct forces does that make sense so it doesn't all just get like merged together into one generic thing well, I think, I mean, a, maybe a question that will help us think about that is these first three or four stories, they are stories that are somehow pleasing to Pallas, to Athena, and they're stories that are somehow scornful of Bacchus. I think the right, right oh, after yeah. this tale I just read, right, they yeah, get yeah. punished for their scorn of Bacchus. So I think the question is, what about these particular transformations are anti-Bacchanalian or pro-Palace Athena. Because these are the first stories in the book that are in the mouth of a character other than the narrator, the first extended stories. 
And I think that's really important. And it's like totally a mystery to me what, why these stories merit the punishment that they got. But I think that's the implication of the poem. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I was reading this as the women telling these stories were somehow virtuous. They weren't participating in the Bacchanalian festivals. And there's a reason that like Bacchus is worshipped in Thebes, that weird land over there that seems to be like the other to Greece and Rome and stuff these all these stories that they tell seem to be some sort of like sublimation of lust into something something else i think like in a in the case of the like romeo and juliet characters that seems like something like higher so something more virtuous i mean i know they die a bloody death but it seems like they do kind of get to be together and in this case it's like showing how i mean i guess to put all my cards on the table it's it this feels like this is showing how the womanly impulse is inherently lustful and that is somehow degrading to men. I couldn't, I couldn't help but read this in like a misogynistic tone. The women, the reason the women are, that are virtuous telling these stories is because they're not, they don't give in to these more like womanly impulses. I mean, I don't know, I'm kind of all over the place there, but I, I was hoping you guys could push back on that. Certainly something that's distinct about this story, we've had many male gods raping women all through, I mean, that's kind of run of the mill in, in Ovid. And this is the first time that a woman has attempted to, to rape a man and, and, it, and, it's, and it doesn't succeed. I don't know, we can talk about that, but. Yeah, it's hard to make, to line it up. I mean, she sort of pursues him, he rejects her. She throws herself on him anyway and she doesn't have the power to actually rape him. I'm not sure how to think about that. And I know like I'm in terms of misogyny, but he does certainly regard being merged with her as a diminution of his powers, right? But I don't think the poem, I don't know. I mean, so the, some of the, the other previous victims of Jove's aggressions, right? They have, I'm, I'm trying to make it like make sense. Like they're also changed, right? The one, well, I, the one woman is changed into a constellation, I think. And the sister of Cadmus, who he went in the first place, went to pursue when Jove, as a bull, carried her into the water. I believe she's also, she's transformed into a tree or something. I think that's how that works. I don't know if it means anything that that Hermaphrodites is transformed, but he sort of retains his human form. He's He's not transformed into an animal or a plant. He's just transformed into a different kind of man. So again, to his, by his account, a lesser man. I don't exactly know what that means, but. Do you think it's a general rule though, as I'm thinking about the sort of archetypal Jove assault story, right? He rapes a woman, uh, the woman gets pregnant, Juno gets jealous, basically that he has eyes for someone other than her and punishes the woman by transforming her into a constellation or a wolf or what have you. And so there's this sort of, in the Jove narratives, the, the transformation is not intrinsic to the erotic act. It is a response by another character to the erotic act. Mm-hmm. And then in this one, it is, it is intrinsic, right? It's of mm-hmm. one piece. And that seems to me significant. Yeah. Well, it's gotta be, it's gotta be tied to the fact that those earlier rapes by male are all gods, right? And this, this is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, where we have like 
human attraction where it's just human to human and isn't it's a she's a some kind of goddess or something she's well, a she's, nymph, a, right? she's, she's a, nymph. a nymph she's a divine or I, I still think there's a difference though there oh yeah, yeah between a nymph and a goddess for sure also i i want to maintain my my theory that a lot of at least those earlier passages especially were critiques of the gods yeah i mean i almost think that it's a, a given in this poem that the gods are not real in any literal sense to such a degree that they're almost not even critiques they're like it's literary poetic metaphysical uses of the gods to some other end but i don't even i don't think that anyone when you hear the word when i hear the word critique i think of like someone trying to dissuade someone else from you know what i mean like change someone's opinion or whatever i guess that could be part of this but i to me this reads like it's written for an audience that already accepts the idea that like Job and Juno are not literal beings flying around in the sky controlling events, but that could be, that could be anachronistic on my part. I guess when I say critiques, I think it's like, it's Ovid casting the gods and like their known behavior, whatever that means to in such a light that it like seems repulsive. And like, it's like, why are, why is this how we understand the world and, and, and you know, in general? So I don't mean like he's trying to dissuade someone from thinking the gods are literally existing creatures, but that, but that the, the fact that we see the world in this way kind of says something more deeper about ourselves as a culture, you know? Oh, uh, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, I that's, that's, that seems, that seems plausible. But the if my misogynistic reading holds, and I, I don't want to like cling to this. In some ways, it seems like the lazy way to read it. But it, I think like he's what Ovid's doing is like attributing what I'm seeing is like womanly characteristic character traits to the to the gods that act in that way, right? And he's like he's trying to suggest like a more uh, it's, it just feels like now we're getting into like a more like direct criticism of the culture and like how people are acting because you know like at this point Rome was you know correct me if I'm wrong but it was like it was in like absolute decadent decay you know like there was this was the time of post Augustus and all that right mm, I think Ovid, this was written during the reign of Augustus I think oh, okay well yeah and I, don't, I, don't, I don't know enough but it seems like at that point it was already sliding into moral decay I wonder, Paul, I mean, like on page 91, right? So the water nymph, um, Salmasis. She was gathering flowers on this particular day when she saw the youngster and wanted what she saw. It seems to me that this is a story of a woman acting in the stereotypically masculine way that all the male gods have acted. And I mean, in a way you could just say, well, this is Ovid's, bow to the notion that yes this is mostly a disgusting thing that men do but women are also capable of it even if it's rarer because like we could compare where where juno or excuse me Jove goes down to repair her after pentheus crashes the chariot right it's almost the same language it's like he was going around fixing the world and then he noticed a girl and, and liked what he saw and, and decided he wanted it right yeah maybe that saves the misogynistic maybe it saves it from the misogynistic uh, reading in seeing it that way, that the problem is that the woman is acting in the worst way that males tend to typically act. I don't know, do you buy that? No, I do. I guess like in the back of my mind, as I was reading through all this, like the, the Bacchanalian orgies were like largely consisted of women, right? And like do, you know, like 
we're being very sexual. And it seems like a lot of like that stereotype kind of comes from that, that idea. And like in the previous book we read, like, you know, the women rip apart that guy and like, you know, I don't know. It just seems like something else that I think wanted to, we, I think is interesting and kind of what you read kind of made me think about this too, Elijah is so with Bacchus, right. There's the demand that the women give up their duties and, that's part of the thing. That's part of the, they, they reject, or I'm not even sure they reject. They just become indifferent to weaving and their daily tasks and all this. And when, and when they do that, it's like they're freed to become these sexual beings. It's somehow these ritual are keeping in check. And part of that freedom involves violence, right? Along with that freedom comes a lot of violence. So it's a lot of hinges on what, whether we think of this as being a, a criticism of of Bacchus or something, that all the characters that resist Bacchus are punished, right? And they're punished like severely. They don't have heroic fates or anything, you know. I mean, they're the one guy's ripped apart by his mother, they're transformed into bats. The three women, the three women that we've been discussing, the weavers that are telling these stories, they're later transformed into bats as a punishment. Bacchus transforms them, transforms them into bats as a punishment. Even Juno can't, even Juno, whose jealousy is, you know, very potent. Yeah, but also a kind of like misogynistic cliche, right? The the, the, the jealous female, the, reject, yeah. the jealous, jilted female. I mean, her her jealousy drives a lot of this poem, but even she can't touch Bacchus. Like he's hmm. somehow above her, you know? And I, I'm not sure. So I, yeah, a lot turns on the relationship to Bacchus still, which I think is still remains ambiguous and unclear from this, this book and the last book. So I want to draw something that I think it was implicit what Paul said, and I think implicit what you just said, Adam. So the the daughter who introduces the story, she says, this one is new, and so I think you ought to like it. So I th- I'm going to propose, right, we have these this anti-Bacchus faction <laughs> or pro-Athena faction, and they're telling a story. This story of, of Salmasis, of the water nymph, is literally a, a satire of a... Of a Bacchanalian woman, right? They're sitting around telling this satire of like, this is what those Bacchanalian women are like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to compare it to Echo, right? Echo and Narcissus it has a similar kind of structure, but in Echo, Echo is takes the rejection to heart and withers away. Salinus, she doesn't. <laughs> well, so if we look at the very introduction of book four, I'm just going to read the first several lines. Uh, Alcitho, however, Minius's daughter, would have no part in the Bacchic orgies. Further, she was rash enough to say that the god was really no son of Jove. Her sister sided with her. The priests had ordered Bacchic celebration with serving women freed of toil and ladies as well as servants dressed alike in skins of animals. All should unbind the ribbons, let the hair stream, wear garlands, carry wands, vine wreathed. The god his minister proclaimed would otherwise be fearful in his anger, so all obey young wives and graver matrons forget their sewing and weaving the daily duties burn incense call the god by all his titles etc right so what characterizes the worship of bacchus is this sort of radical undifferentiation whether you're a serving woman whether you're a noble lady whether you're a servant you're all dressing alike all of the sort of cultural distinctions the sort of small c conservative cultural distinctions that have characterized society up to this point are put aside right so to sum up right the worship of bacchus 
engaging in the orgy always leads to the sort of undifferentiation where all of the distinctions sort of disappear. And then in this story of male and female merging, we see another sort of undifferentiation, another sort of a binary is collapsed, right? Something, a normal sort of boundary disappears, which would support the idea that the water nymph is meant to be a Bacchanalian woman, again, perhaps viewed satirically by these people that haven't bought into the, the cult. What do you think of that? Yeah, I like that idea. The Again, I think it turns somewhat on the poems itself's relationship to Bacchus, because if we think of this in, in, in contrast to Echo and Narcissus, then you could say that Echo is weaker and less successful. And even though Hermaphrodite attempts to reject Salamachus, she, she sort of succeeds, right? So you that if you you could see you could see her story as superior to to Narcissus and Echo, right? Like you you could see her outcome as superior to theirs. And to to, to let down your hair and put on animal skins and cease doing your weaving duty and you know run through the streets with a <laughs> with garlands and wands, a drunk is a kind of transformation, right? It's a it's a literal kind of transformations we see enacted in, in the other stories. Again, I'm just not sure how to think about the whole poem's relationship to Bacchus. When what's so hard, uh, and Paul was talking about the critiques the poem is making, what's so hard is that as a narrator, Ovid seems to really strive for the appearance of neutrality, right? There's very few sort of didactic statements, with the, with the uh, exception, I think, of the envy passage that we discussed in week two, or in book two. It's not even clear that he thinks being turned into bats is a bad thing. <laughs> it's just a thing. And then even with this water nymph, right? Yes, she gets what she wants in one way, but in another way, uh, Hermaphroditus gets the last word and her agency disappears. So how do we read that? Is it a Pyrrhic victory? Is it a real victory? Is it a victory that Ovid thinks is a good thing or a bad thing? I, I mean, he really seems to withhold from at least giving that information explicitly which is not to say that the poem is not making judgments, but that it's not making judgments in the sort of didactic way or the explicit way. Yeah, that's true. I, I was thinking that the, the women, the daughters of Cadmus, they regard being transformed into bats as bad, right, within the poem. So at least in that sense, they are punished. They, they do, they are punished. What Ovid thinks, I mean, yeah, there does seem to be a real a tone of, of just total neutrality towards all transformations. Again, you know, all all life is a kind of process of transformation. Well, and if that's like his purpose is to like just sort of lay out how life is fundamentally changed, then it does seem like he might be more pro-Bacchus, right? Because Bacchus is precisely the you know, you can't have the a, you can't agent have a, of dramatic change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like domesticity is almost impossible with Bacchus if it's the most powerful. And I do think that's why he's given such a like privileged place in terms of power. Like you were saying, like Juno doesn't even have power over him, and like it almost seems like Jove might be the only one that could rival him. But I guess like the way I've been reading it is less in a neutral way, and that uh, Ovid does seem like he's like pro this is overstating a little bit like but pro status like 
he's he's wants Rome to do well and he and this is sort of his I guess I use the word critique but I but I mean that in the sense of like trying to show how Rome might correct itself or why it why it's a virtuous thing anyway and you know these kinds of things that's I guess that's the general way I've been reading the poem but obviously it's probably too early to tell well I think maybe uh another way to think about this is I think virtually all of the transformations are from an agent capable of speaking to one that can't speak right and over and over we see this thing of the person was transformed and they tried to speak, but they couldn't, right? And I'll even just read from the bat, bat section, right? They tried to speak, but the sounds they made were tiny as their bodies, a squeak of protest. And still they flock to houses, not woods. They hate the light and flit in darkness. I read that and it seems like there's something tragic in once being an agent that could speak and then being one that's no longer able of expressing oneself. And that seems to be the pattern. I can't think of a single instance where someone was transformed from a frog that couldn't speak to a human that could. And maybe I'm contradicting myself about his apparent neutrality, but it seems to me that the general attitude of the poem towards those transformations of being a speaking agent to one that can't speak, if not bad, at least tragic, that those are, if they're not bad, they're at least tragic. <laughs> which maybe is the transformation from a democracy to a tyranny. <laughs> I don't know. Could you say a little bit more about why it would be a transformation to, from a democracy to a tyranny? Uh, this is a wild hair poll. I mean, okay. in the democracy, right, people have, the people have a voice. Mm. At least the land, right, the landowning males have a voice, but the people have a voice, right, in a tyranny, that voice disappears. But I mean, I've not seen evidence in the text. I was just sort of uh, being imaginative. One thing that's definitely the power of speech is really an important part of the poem, right? I guess one thing I would say is that it's not entirely true that transformation, I think it is true that no one has been transformed. Nothing has been transformed from a speechless being into a being with speech, but there are plenty of transformations where someone is transformed into a different kind of a being that still has the power of speech, right? We just we saw that just now with Hermaphroditus and before that with Echo. There's one counter example though that in the first book the the stones were thrown and and they turned into men and women. Stones were transformed into human beings. The the teeth that Cadmus sows. Yeah, the teeth also, yeah. Huh. All right. Yes, I grant that. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, again, I mean, nevertheless, like the power of speech is central. I, I was thinking in this book, even there's, this is the end of Cadmus. In the section, the end of Cadmus starts on 99. So I'll read, um, I'll read a little bit. Now Cadmus did not know that daughters and grandson had become sea gods overborne with sorrow and one misfortune after another conquered by all the portents he had seen he left the city he had founded as if luck, not his own fate, oppressed him. And he wandered long with his queen until they reached Illyria. They were sad and old and they kept talking over the troubles of their house. Was that a serpent slain by my spear so long ago? Asked Cadmus, when I was fresh from Sidon. Did I sow a serpent's teeth in the ground to generate new men? 
If this is what the gods are angry over, may I become a serpent with a body stretched full length forward. Even as he spoke, he stretched out full length forward, felt his skin harden and scales increase and mottled markings sprinkling, sprinkle his blackening body. He fell forward, crawled on his belly with his legs behind him, drawn in and tapering. He still had arms and tried to reach them forward. His cheeks were human and tears ran down them as he cried. Come nearer, my dear poor wife, while there is something left for you to come to. Come and touch my hand before I have no hand and holy serpent. He wanted to say more, but found his tongue suddenly forked. Instead of words, a hissing spoke his lament. Nature had left him nothing save this one power. She beat her breast. O oh, Cadmus, unhappy man, she cried. Remain, put off his horrible appearance. What is this? Where are your feet, your shoulders, hands, complexion? your all of you why not transform me also gods of heaven into another serpent he licked her face glided between her breasts as if he knew them twined twined around her neck while all who stood there watching shook in horror but the queen only stroked the serpent neck crested but smooth and suddenly there were only two serpents there entwined about each other and gliding after a while to hiding places in the dark wood now, as before, they never hurt men nor fear them, for they both remember what once they were. They are most gentle servants. So it ties together a lot of things we've been talking about in that the power of speech is central, right? This is a world where when you speak a desire or speak a fantasy or speak a wish, it, no matter how fantastical, it can just be granted instantly. This is a world where erotic fantasies have extreme power in physical reality right and also the final power that's left to cadmus is he can still hiss right so he can he can sort of make meaning through hissing <laughs> and he retains his human consciousness so he wants to make meaning but his his ability to speech is vast his ability to speak is vastly diminished but it's still in sort of a diminished form exists and they they merge at the end right they 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 twine their bodies together in a sort of lover's embrace, but not a, presumably not like a sexual one at that point, I don't know. Well, and if, now that you're framing it this way, which I think is exactly the right way to frame it, so many of the transformations have been based, have been the result of speech, right? So the water nymph prays and that results in the transformation or the merger. The three daughters tell the story, and in my reading, they're telling these impious stories from the Bacchanalian perspective brings on their punishment. So the, the transformative nature of the world as Ovid imagines it is not the Lucretian where it's just like matters bumping up against matter and it sort of unfolds according to the sort of physics of the universe, but the, the human agents and divine agents have speech and the speech inflects the transformations in really serious and significant ways, right? So it's not, it's not like a Darwinian evolution or something. It's a logo, it's a logos driven. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a universe where transformation comes about as a result of logos in some way or another, even though, as you said, right, often that speech is frivolous or doesn't know what it's asking or is, fantastic but nonetheless um i think you're exactly right to bring our attention to that aspect of transformation 
Ovid as a proto-idealist. Yeah, that's right. There is something to that. I mean, matter, the, the form of matter is less, far less substantial than the speech and the consciousness of the characters, right? Like they're, you can be transformed into a serpent, but you still remember clearly being a man and that affects your, you're a kind, you're a kind, gentle serpent because you carry inside your serpent's body the, the mind and the memory of a man. I mean, this is something I was wondering about while I was reading or while I've been reading this book the whole time really is like these etological moments like the mulberry tree in this one. There's, a, there's several others, but um, that's the one that came to mind. And I think you guys are right that there is like a more, I was thinking about it more in like terms of spirituality like the gods do it or whatever the speech is doing it there's something that seems like that's fundamental to our spiritual existence but there's that's Ovid's way right of explaining the origins of things it's just it's just one of the things that keeps I mean it's 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 so fundamental to epic the epic tradition for one but it also just feels like it's so fundamental to human to human thinking human wondering human contemplation i it's it's it seems odd to me though you know it's like i i sometimes i wonder if like if like i haven't like kind of lost that sense of like i don't really wonder about the origins of things and i think part of it might just because we have this like overly scientific explanation that's like super powerful big big bang you know then darwin takes over and you know we've got everything end of story it's like it, i mean that's obviously an oversimplification but it's really easy to do that when you're trying to think about where things came from and there is nothing like spiritual about that right there's nothing like super or like obviously meaningful about that so anyway that's kind of just a rambling thought but it does it just like comes up over and over and over and it just seems so important to these people and it does seem like it that's one aspect at least that kind of flows from every epic that we've read so far. Right. And it's not so much, maybe Paul, well, Paul, tell me if you would agree with this, but it's not so much that for Ovid, that the universe is saturated in, in logos in like a, the way Aquinas might say, but it's that it's saturated in, in mythos, right? That these stories past the mulberry tree and that that has depth and significance because there's a, a story behind it that sort of gives it weight something like that right yeah and i think that's what i was trying to get out with like the meaning part of it i mean i guess there's a story to the modern scientific explanation to it but it's not there aren't characters there aren't like events that like there's not events in like <laughs> in this way that happened um it just feels fundamentally different. I, I don't know how quite how to put my finger on it, but it does feel very, um, it feels like that's one way at least that like humans have changed a lot is like our, our way of explaining origins. Well, I do think there's a, there's a very Ovidian sense to contemporary thinking about like species, right? I mean, it's all about, every, everything now is about the blurring of boundaries and the collapsing of binaries. The, the Thomas the Thomistic way to consider species is that they are eternal types, right? That just repeat exactly over and over and over again. And the modern story, the you know evolutionary story, to me is in a sense much more of a Vidian. Although I even though it's not driven by 
there's not mythic storytelling in the background of the, you know, but, but species originate in other species, right? And the transformation of one species to another. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, yeah, I was just kind of pointing to the lack of mythos in our way of explaining, explaining it. But yeah, I think that's an interesting comparison. But it's, it seems like though, so if we think about the Darwinian narrative, right, is change comes about through the struggle for survival, which strictly speaking does not require storytelling or speech. In the Ovidian universe, well, so in the Ovidian universe, the tragedy of becoming an animal that can't speak, becoming a wolf or becoming a deer or so on and so forth, right, is that once that, that does seem to be me to be an important dividing line because once you go from a, a creature that can speak to one that can't speak, uh, you lose the ability to, you lose some sort of agency to use speech to invoke further transformations that might ameliorate your situation. Right, right. You right, that's the tragedy of it because as long as you can speak, you can, you can throw up a prayer or you can say something or you can invoke yeah. something that will change things. But once you're a snake, uh, you can, you know, the, the hissing is limited to lament. That's the only thing it can do. Um, Actually, really, that does seem there, to be some sort of firm boundary in my mind. Are there any instances in any of the epics we've read of, of the gods reading someone's thoughts? Or is that a power that they don't ever have? Alex, you're the, I'm, I'm asking you. You've got the memory. <laughs> I do not no, I can't one. recall. I, I think I think you are right, Mr. Keck. So that's a really interesting feature, right? Like they they you can call on the gods and you can demand things of them and you can change their behavior with through speech and through action, but they they don't have any access to your to your inner life in that sense. Then they don't have like the, the way that obviously like the Christian God sees all of your thoughts, knows all of your thoughts. Well, and that's interesting too, right? Because that that's a different conception of spirituality than I think we typically function with, right? Because it's got to be, <laughs> this is not a good term to use, but it's it needs to be phenomenological, right? The spiritual activity has to be voiced. It has to be, the mulberry tree has to come into existence through some sort of spiritual act but it, but like the but the phenomenological instantiation is really fundamental to that spiritual act so it can't just be something that's like it's not invisible spirituality i guess is what i'm trying to say it's something that does have to be um heard or seen or something like that you know right well we and, and you totally have that in the archaic forms of christianity whether you're talking about catholicism or you're talking about pentecostalism right and in speaking in tongues and all that stuff it's really like post-enlightenment christianity that that makes it totally non-phenomenological as uh, to use your, I think not totally adequate, but I understand why you're using it term. You think you can spell that point out a little bit more. Can you say two or three more sentences about that? The, the difference between pre-modern and post-enlightenment Christian understanding of. Well, so I would say, right, for the Catholics, the, right, the Eucharist, the communion is so important because it's a physical instantiation of the spiritual nurturing that God does. And then for the Pentecostal types, the speaking in tongues or the, the being slain in the spirit or, you know, the shaking, any of that, or the Quakers even, right? Any of that stuff is sort of a physical manifestation of the spiritual in the world. 
Whereas I think, I mean, this is hard because I'm making broad statements about big groups of people, but the more modern Christianity doesn't put near as much emphasis on the importance of that and would be totally fine without it in many cases. And I guess I'm thinking of sort of modern Protestantism mm -hmm. generally. Not actually sure how that connects to Ovid, I was, but I thought, I think this kind of what Paul was, was getting at. We want to speak really broadly, right? Like we've gone a long way from Ovid, but that's, that's okay. Like the, the, the world, the Ovidian world is a world where everything is filled with the metaphysical and the supernatural, right? And the mulberry tree has a supernatural or kind of mythic explanation. Human speech can, through the agency, through the agency that gods can transform, a man can be transformed into a serpent just by saying, I want to be transformed into a serpent. And a, and a god, not even a specific god, just in general, the gods intercede and it happens immediately, right? His wife has the same thing happen to her. Um, this is a world that is filled with gods and the actions of gods and everything has some sort of god-like characteristic and then the eucharist seems a step beyond that in the sense that there's a specific ritual and a specific object that is uh, like a particle of god or something you know and god is sort of infuses the world in a different way but there have to be these specific moments that carry that knowledge forward then uh, the post-enlightenment christianity seems like a step further which is that God is imminent over everything. And you, you know what I mean? And so there's like you and there's God. And these are the things that have agency and there's matter, right? And matter is governed by laws and it has no divine in it at all. And nothing, no tree is gonna transform into a serpent. You know, a tree is not gonna do anything unexpected. Trees don't have that kind of life. You know, you have the life and God has the life. And even God is not really, God is governed by rational laws as well. God is, you know, some in some sense isomorphic reason and then like a step beyond that is just to remove god altogether and then it's just you you know and then you live in the world that we are all very familiar with right and then you have people like heidegger who's supposed to go back way back when we started talking about it with bergson who are trying to like re phenomenal <laughs> make through phenomenology make the world re-mythic in some way right, right. re-enchant yeah put the life back into objects and trees and, and not just have it all be inside us and our and our minds and our speech mm -hmm. well and one more note on, on the new testament then maybe we can find our way back to ovid it's and the old testament or the jewish scriptures in the new testament speech is important in a similar way as it's important for ovid right god creates the universe using speech you have the story where jesus sees the fig tree and it's the wrong season it doesn't have any fruit and he says may you never produce fruit again and then they pass by it the next day and it's dead like very bizarre story um, you have Jesus saying to Lazarus, right, uh, and John, come out, and the, the dead man transforms to an undead man or a live man. Um, so cast the, he cast the demons out through speed as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I do think uh, if you were to do an analysis of the function of speech in the New Testament, it would be strikingly similar to, there would be striking similarities to what Ovid is presenting here. But I would say that modern Christians don't tend to think about speech that way. Maybe to their detriment, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, what, and what does all this have to do with Ovid? <laughs> <laughs> Could I uh, give us a, I don't know, a fun thing 
to chew on based on talking about uh, Ovid's explanatory accounts for the origin of certain animals. I wanted to say it's rather charming to think of the 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 peacock uh, with its feathers open as being like, oh, those are the eyes of Argus, who was, uh, you know, brutally decapitated. <laughs> his his head with his hundred eyes rolls down the hill and then Juno is like oh poor Argus I'm gonna put your eyes in the in the feathers of my birds my pet birds right so I mean that's interesting because so many things that seem charming underneath them violence like horrible violence underlies them right that's actually kind of a shocking element of this poem like things that you think are cute and charming like mulberry trees and peacocks Actually, it's like what underlies them is mutual suicide, you know, two lovers suicide and decapitation and, you know, defenestration and plucking out the eyes of this, of this, of this betrayed man. We also haven't discussed Atlas, who's transformed into a mountain, which I'm trying to think about how to think, like how to think about that as kind of an origin story of, of a mountain or something. You know, I mean, we talked about these having like mythic, this mythos being in the background of all these things and saturating this world. But another way to think about the transformation of a God into a mountain, right. is a kind of naturalistic thing, reading where, well, where a God becomes a mountain, <laughs> where, where a divine being becomes a, a mountain. And in, instead of a, a God propping something up, a mountain props it up, which is much more, you know, yeah, much more naturalistic and much less mythic. But, I, I agree, but prior to the transformation of the mountain is the oracle, right? The reason he doesn't welcome him into his, his realm is that there was an oracle that a son of Job was going to destroy him, right? So the, the, the inciting incident was this piece of speech, this ancient oracle, which causes him right in the very Greco-Roman fashion and trying to avoid it, he actually fulfills it. Well, and also, like, I don't think it's fair to attribute, like, a coherent, systematic account of material objects and their origins coming from Ovid, right? One thing that might indicate, Adam, that you're pointing out is, like, they just didn't have as rigorous, rigorous a distinction between the spiritual and the material. So for us, it looks like, oh, a mountain holds up the world. Yeah, that's very materialistic, naturalistic, whatever. But for them, it's just... I just didn't think, I don't think they cared. That just seemed yeah, like a no, non-problem. I, I was thinking more like the framing, if we go back to the beginning, the very beginning, the framing of this is that we're in the Jovian age, which is a degree, which is a decline from the age of Saturn, right? So we're in like the, remember the gold and the silver and the bronze, right? And perhaps one thing, this is kind of a counter possibility what we've been discussing in the last readings, but Perhaps one thing that we could see happening in this poem in the age of Job is that things are assuming a permanent and like somehow less noble or dignified form, right? It's like this is the this is the story of how the great god Atlas became a mountain, and now it's just a mountain forever. But maybe part of the decline is the decline away from the mythical mythical world into the world of Roman politics. And in, in your point, basically, Adam, would be that the Ovid and his readers, they would experience the peacock or the mountain 
or the wolf, or whatever, the bear, the constellation as a, what appeared to be a permanent thing, or at least a semi-permanent thing. They weren't seeing these things transform before their eyes. So mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of maybe thinking of it as a story of continual transformation, it's a story about a period of transformation that led us to a, a semi-stable world in some sort of stasis, quasi-stasis. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of a fair summary? Yeah, no, that's good. That's well, that's well put. That would be a sort of more Virgilian take on it, right? Because then you're, you've essentially re retold in a very different way the story of history, but this, it ends up culminating with this, with Roman imperial stasis and domination or something. <laughs> Rome is uniquely stable among the things. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the, exactly. the eternal city is something right. special. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can right, see that. why, you can see why we have to have our, uh, requisite um, augustus mention uh, yeah exactly. you can see why you can see why the city of god would be a pretty uh spurious text uh, <laughs> and when uh, you know if rome is supposed to be the permanent obviously yeah, that's for... right. yeah. <laughs> it's a real firebomb i mean it, augustine was a well let's <laughs> this no, is no. not a podcast about saint augustine <laughs> but, but he was a radical very radical character That'll be the spin-off podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna read through City of God. <laughs> I I think uh, I'm down. <laughs> I've got two years. <laughs> After Dante. Although we'd probably read City of God first, because I'm sure there's all kinds of allusions to City of God and Dante, but uh, that's neither here nor there. We are uh, we're gonna say goodnight now. <laughs> thank, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Key to All Mythologies. The Quixotic Quest. Our oh. Quixotic Quest for the Key. Mm -hmm. uh, please join us again next week when we will be discussing Book Five of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And if you'd like to email us, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at key to all mythologies at protonmail.com. Thank you. Good night. Good night. I I think it's a good idea to keep it to one book for next time. Actually, that's fine. That conversation was uh was actually pretty rich anyway, so I don't think we should try to do two. I I take back my previous statement. <laughs> Apologies to Ovid. Mm -hmm. Your your poem is <laughs> is weighty and serious. Not <laughs>